trust you're having a good week. So-so? Well, you're in the right place either way. It's a good place to be with God's people tonight and to study the Word and singing and praying together. Let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Lord, we do thank you for your Word now, and uh, I pray that you would minister to our hearts as we study together. Lord, what a rich text it is in terms of uh, all that we have in Jesus Christ and the intimacy that we enjoy with you as a result of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so, Lord, I thank you for um, the people of God that are here tonight, uh, which is really your temple, as we will see in our study. So we just commit our study to you, ask your blessing upon it now, pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Well, as we have noted, we are in Ephesians, and the theme of the book is the universal church. And we have the universal church, which includes all believers down throughout the church age. And the church age began on the day of Pentecost. And it's going to be concluded at the rapture, when Christ takes his people out of the world, which could happen at any time. We're not told when. We're to be watching and waiting. But uh, that's the universal church. Some are in heaven, some are, some are on earth. But all that become believers in Jesus Christ are part of the church. And we're going to be seeing that here tonight. And then there's also uh, the universal church. But there's also, in contrast to universal church, there are local churches, which we happen to be one, right? Local churches. In fact, it's interesting. You have 114 references to church in the New Testament. But 90 of those 114 references refer to the local church. Because functionally, that's where really it happens. That's where you have leadership in the church. That's where you have accountability. Uh, that's where the ordinances are practiced, etc. It happens in conjunction with the, the local church. God's gifted every individual in the local church, uh, in the church to, to function in the context of a, of a local church. And so, uh, yeah, we're studying the universal church, but there's certainly going to be a lot of application for the local church, especially as we get into the applicational section of the book in chapters 4 through 6. Well, Paul starts out with a grand statement on our salvation in chapter 1, 3 through 14. One long sentence, uh, really kind of hitting the, the themes, the major themes of, of so great a salvation. And I've compared it to the Grand Canyon. Yes, I've been to the Grand Canyon. I've seen the Grand Canyon. You know, but I didn't see all 177 miles of it, right? I didn't see uh, everything. It was a mile across, mile deep, whatever. Uh, there's a lot I didn't see. And it's kind of the way with our salvation. We see the high points. And praise the Lord, we see a lot of things. But Paul goes on to pray uh, for enlightenment at the end of chapter 1. And then, as we saw as we got into chapter 2, that we are saved by grace through faith. And it's based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we left off last time, chapter 2 and verse 13. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, we Gentiles, we were far off. Uh, we, we didn't have anything to do with God. We had no relationship with the covenants, uh, specifically. And uh, here we have been brought near now by the blood of Christ. Well, that's where we pick it up, and uh, why don't we have somebody read, uh, well, let's have somebody read the first three verses here in our study, uh, 2, 14 through 16, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, somebody want to read that? Yeah, John? Yes, please.
himself of truly one man, so making peace, that he might reconcile unto he might and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Okay. So he's talking about what Jesus Christ has done. And really, it's in relationship to the church as we will move through here. But notice it says, he himself is our peace. There's an emphasis there. It's not our works. It's not religious rituals. Uh, It's himself. He himself is our peace. And the idea, of course, peace, uh, you know, you got the Hebrew word shalom, uh, Irenae, the Greek word. But really, same concept. It's the idea of well-being or wholeness. Uh, lack of hostility. All is well. He himself is, is our peace. And he's really thinking on two levels. Uh, our peace in relationship with God and our peace with one another now as, as family members, especially Jew and Gentile is the emphasis here. But uh, he himself is our peace who has made both one. As I say, there's a, two prongs of emphasis in terms of Christ uh, being our peace. And uh, here in Romans 5.10 uh, for when we were enemies, enemies of God, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's where we were. Uh, we were not at peace. Uh, we were enemies. Um, of course, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. But then down here, uh, towards one another, we ourselves also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another kind of defines the world. So much agitation and hate out here. Enemies of God hating one another. Well, Christ came to be our peace. Our peace. And it says here, he himself is our peace, who has made both one. He's talking about the oneness that we now have in Jesus Christ as believers. And he's talking about Jew and Gentile in particular as we move through the text. So there's a spiritual equality Remember in verse 13, where I just read there, um, you who were once far off. Well, we're not far off anymore. Uh, we have been brought near. We are, we are right there in spiritual unity uh, with believing Jews. Uh, so there's, there's really not a Jewish church and a Christian church. There's one church. And we're all on an equal footing here. Uh, there's no, the Jews can't say, well, we're a little higher now. Nope. Uh, Gentiles can't say that. We're, we're on an equal footing. He has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation. Now, there was a great division uh, in the past under the law. There was a great division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And, uh, you know, in fact, uh, in the temple, uh, Gentiles, how far could they get into the temple? <laughs> That's right. They couldn't actually get into the temple proper. And, uh, of course, neither could Jews. The priests got into the temple proper. But even as far as, yeah, the Gentile court was the most exterior part of the temple complex. Uh, so they they could get that far. But, th- but that was it. Um, so you have a major distinction here under the law between the Jews who are in covenant relationship with God and the Gentiles. And the, the Gentiles are just seen as far off, you know. Uh, but now that, that wall that separated them has been broken down. And uh, notice he calls it the, the, the middle wall of separation. 
What was this major uh, dividing point between the Jews and the Gentiles? All right, I'm going to build on that as we go on to verse 15. But any thoughts? I'll ask for your thoughts probably after each verse if you have something. Yes, Vince? Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Amen, brother. That is so true. And you know, when you think about historically, you could not be any more divided than the Jews and the Gentiles. For God to bring them together uh, is an amazing thing. And, and you, amen to what you said there. That's exactly right. The heart of the world tries, the worse it seems to get, yeah, you know, really. So, but anyway, here's what he did. It continues on, verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, and then he says what that is. That is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. So uh, he abolished this, uh, this enmity that was causing the division between the Jews and the, and the Gentiles. Uh, abolish means to render inoperative, to make null and void. And uh, he says here that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now, the Mosaic law had all kinds of rules, all kinds of ordinances that really caused a wedge to be between the Jews and the Gentiles. What were some of those wedges that the law put in place? It's like the Jews are over here and the Gentiles are over here, and those two are never going to mix. What are some of the wedges that the law put in place? Diet. Diet. That's a huge one. I mean, goodness, we got all kinds of issues, even in the New Testament, they're working through related to diet. Yeah, that's right. Man, if you're a Jew, you you do not eat bacon for breakfast. Uh, Gentiles don't want to give up our bacon too quickly. <laughs> That's right. That's true. So yeah, diet was a, was a huge one. Um, how about uh, sacrifices? Uh, you know, if you were a Jew and you had a problem, you would bring a sacrifice to God. What if you're a Gentile? What are you going to do? Could you bring a sacrifice as a Gentile? Say, hey, I'm a Gentile here. I'm here to sacrifice. What's that? That's right. You had to become a converted Jew. You had to be a proselyte. That's right. Uh, How about the issue of circumcision? Yeah, that was a major dividing point, wasn't it? I mean, if you're a Jew, uh, you're circumcised, showing you are in in covenant relationship with God. Gentiles, mm, no. No, that, that's, in fact, you call the Jews circumcision and the Gentiles uncircumcision. It's, the ma- it's a major dividing line. So you have all these different things related to the law that really serve to divide the Jews from the Gentiles. And, uh, you know, as we think about uh, the law, whoops, sorry, you're ahead of me. You're a good man. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, the Jews counted 613 laws under the system of the Mosaic law. To analyze it, theologians break it down into three categories. Uh, the moral law, that we'll call the Ten Commandments. 
the ceremonial law related to worship requirements, and the judicial law, laws re, uh, regulating interpersonal relationships. Now, um, <clears throat> the thing about the law is that while there is this threefold classification that is helpful in, in a sense, uh, the fact is that to the Jews, and really biblically, the law was a unit of one. It all stands together or falls together. I mean, if you are a law keeper and say, well, I keep the law, that means you keep all 613 laws all the time, in thought, word, and deed. And nobody could do this. James 2.10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Uh, I all, often compare it to a, a window glass, right? You know, let's say your, your windshield is broken, but you say, well, it's just broken on the right side. Uh, no, that, that windshield is broken. It needs to be, you know, the, the, and that's the way the law is. You just break one point, one of the 613 laws. Romans says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So although the law was given to the Jews, there's an application of that moral law reality to the whole world. And it shows that everybody's guilty. Uh, nobody keeps the law of God. And therefore, it says here in verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what the law says. The law says, here's the holy standard of God, and nobody measures up to it. We all come short of the glory of God, right? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The glory of God standard is revealed in the law, and nobody measures up to that. And so praise the Lord for Romans 10 as he goes on here. For, the, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the equal footing we're talking about. It's found in Jesus Christ. All believers, it's not a matter of, well, we're, we're under the law now. Uh, we're not under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ, which is the law of love. But we're not under the law of Moses any longer. So uh, he abolished it. He abolished it. Uh, by the way, this is a great verse for those who still want to place us under the law in some form. We have all these Christians running around out here and say, well, the law is still for today. No, it's been abolished. He abolished uh, that enmity that is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And to what end? So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So uh, he created one new man. One new entity from the two. And the word new here is not new in time, but the emphasis is new in kind. God's doing something brand new. This is not a continuation of Israel. The church is not Israel. It's the church. Uh, it's, not a continu- it's not a combination of Jew and Gentile, in effect. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole new category of humanity. That has been ordained by God. And it's called the church of Jesus Christ. It's a brand new thing. Uh, Jew and Gentile by background. Now one in Christ and called the church. That's what he says. So as to create in himself one new man from the two. Thus making peace. No more barriers. The law has been moved out of the way. Uh, no more barriers. Now there's total equality in Christ. And both are under the law of Christ. 
So, uh, William McDonald says, <clears throat> the cross is God's answer to racial discrimination, segregation, anti-Semitism, bigotry, and every form of strife between men. What do you think about that? Vince, <laughs> that's what you were talking about. You were reading McDonald, weren't you? <laughs> Actually, you were reading the book. <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? What's the answer? We got all these racial tensions going on today, you know, and you can look at this a hundred different ways. And, uh, but what is, where do we really find uh, the answer? Well, it's found in the cross. That's what this is emphasizing here. That's the answer. By the way, if you wait for uh, unsaved people to behave themselves, you're in for a long wait. In for a long, long wait. Especially if you're going to say, we're going to change the whole society. They're all just going to all of a sudden behave. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, notice he continues on here, verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God. So he has emphasized kind of this, this uh, horizontal emphasis in terms of Jew and Gentile being reconciled to where we have peace. But both are involved here. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. The idea of reconcile is to be brought back into a right relationship. And it applies to both. That he might reconcile them both to God. Both needed to be made right and brought into a right relationship with God. The Jews had the law. They had all kinds of advantages in terms of the revelation of God. But they still were not right until they came to know uh, Jesus Christ and put their faith in him. Uh, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. So again, there's no us versus them. It's one body. Uh, reconciled to God, one body. Through the cross. This is what made it possible. It was the cross work of Jesus Christ. Um, this has brought about this har these harmonious relationships, or this relationship that we now enjoy in Jesus Christ. And then he says, thereby putting to death the enmity, that hostility that was between the Jews and the Gentiles. No more. We, we are what we are because of Jesus Christ and his cross. And, and we give all the glory to him. Okay. Um, all right. Any other thoughts there? Yes, Marianne? Yeah, question. Yep. Oh, in here, okay. okay so yep. The moral the moral law. The moral law. What is? Uh, the law of Moses as a code that we are under is abolished. Uh, in terms of the moral law of God is not abolished. And we are under, and you know, it talks about in Galatians 5 and Romans 13, that if you love, you keep the law. So uh, that's why I say we are under, we're not under nothing. We are under the law of Christ. We're under the law of love. But there's an inward dynamic now. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live that out. Versus under the law, it was up to you to try to keep the law. And, and you couldn't do that. But now through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, let's go to Romans for just, just one reference here. That's a great thoughtful question. But in Romans chapter 8, um, 
He talks about um, Romans uh, 8, 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so, so yeah, we are under the spirit. We are under the law of Christ, but we're not under that code. We're not under the Mosaic law. And as I say, it was a unit of one. So you can't just say, well, we're picking out the moral aspects. No, there's all these other aspects that go with that law too. That code that God gave to Israel. So we're not under that code that God gave to Israel. We are under the new covenant, which relates to the law of Christ. And love is the governing reality for us. So does that make sense? Okay. That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Sure. That's right. So uh, as that has been abolished, you know, that's Acts 15, church as well. Right. And Judaizers wanted to bring the Gentiles under the law as a rule for life. Right. And, and the, the, the apostles said no. Mm-hmm. So how, how is it to be used? Well, is it to be used as a tool to demonstrate God's righteousness and man's sinfulness? That's right. Not as a rule for living. You know, that's right. This is the character of God. This is God's righteousness. Right. So now that we are imposing that's right. Amen. It's especially a useful tool to show people they don't match up to the holy standard of God re- that's found in the law, uh, the glory of God standard that's revealed in there. But yeah, uh, it was never a means of salvation. Uh, Vince, let me just, you know, role play a little bit here. How, okay, so how were people saved uh, back in the Old Testament? They weren't saved by the law, so how were they saved then? Yeah, and how was that? By faith. faith. Yeah, anybody that's ever been saved has been saved by faith. There's a consistency all the way through the scriptures. And the way you revealed your faith in the Old Testament is you you sought to keep the law because that's what God this is how God is asking you to live. It demonstrated itself in a desire to obey. Right. And, uh, you know, under the new covenant. I mean, uh, we have been given commandments under the new covenant. And what did Christ say is the new commandment that he has given to us? To love one another. How? They had to love one another back in the Old Testament, too. How are we supposed to love one another? Yeah, as I have loved you, right? As Christ has loved us. Yeah? To add to that, you have the law that was external. Yeah. Under the new covenant, we have the Holy Spirit. Right. We have the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Right. Yeah. Not. Not in the sense that we had under the old covenant. Yeah. yeah there's an internal reality there, the working out in our life. And, and yeah, I mean, we do walk in the spirit. We are told to walk in the spirit. There's an obedience component there, uh, but the, the power is of God to really live this out. Right. Very good. All right. Anyone else? Good input there. Great question. (laughs) All right. Let's go on here. Let's have somebody read uh, uh, 17 through. uh, Let's just read 17 to start with. Verse 17 kind of in some way stands by itself, although there's a context to everything. But who wants to read verse 17? Yeah, Dwayne. Okay. So uh, here's what Christ accomplished. He uh, 
offered himself up on the cross to make peace, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might be right with one another, Jew and Gentile, in in one body. Uh, And then it says, uh, after he had done this, made it possible, it says, he came and preached peace to you who were afar off. Well, this has Gentiles in view. And to those who were near, that has Jews in view. So uh, after the cross, there's an announcement. Uh, And, uh, you know, it was really kind of announced even earlier. I mean, we uh, have it announced at his birth, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Uh, A Savior is born uh, who is Christ the Lord, just a few verses up earlier. But what is the end result? On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Uh, This is the peace child, the one that's going to bring about peace. And then in Acts 10, 36, Peter is saying, The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. So he is the source, the basis of peace. And uh, it says he came and preached peace to you. Um, Well, what does this mean? Uh, We believe it is uh, predicated on the cross, as we just saw in verse 16. So this proclamation, we think, is taking place after the cross, because the cross is the basis of this peace in context that he's talking about. And so note uh, this here. Uh, The problem is that Christ never personally preached to the Gentiles following his resurrection, right? Who did Christ appear to after his resurrection? It wasn't to a whole host of Gentiles, right? No, his, his disciples. And at one time there was a, a large gathering in 1 Corinthians 15 of 500 people at one time. But boy, that was the, the lone exception that we find in the scriptures. Most of the time to the apostles, uh, to Mary Magdalene, uh, to the women, you know, is it there, James. There's a few of those appearances. But he never really preached personally to the Gentiles following his resurrection as far as we know. Therefore, it is assumed that what is in view is what Paul will go on to discuss in verses 19 through 22 and in 3, 5 through 6. Namely, that Christ did this via his special chosen representatives, as seen in the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. And there's a tremendous emphasis on that as we will get to the end of our study tonight, as well as in chapter 3. You have to realize the apostles were really uh, an extension of Jesus' ministry, as it were. They were his authoritative representatives in a very special sense. So uh, how did he preach this? Well, he's doing it through his his uh, chosen instruments, uh, the apostles and prophets. And uh, he preached peace to you. Well, we saw Peter preaching it right there in, in Acts uh, chapter 10. And uh, to those who were far off, that's uh, the Gentiles. And to those who were near, uh, the Jews, uh, all needed to hear it. All needed to respond to this gospel. Uh, The gospel message of peace applies to all equally on the basis of faith in Christ. In the flood, those on the highest mountains drown just like those in the lowest valleys and at all points in between. Likewise, all those in the ark, really a picture of salvation, a picture of Christ, experience God's mercy and salvation. So in Christ, all are equally saved, whatever their previous background. So all the way through, we have this emphasis here on on equality found in Jesus Christ. Okay, um, any other input there? Yeah, sure. No, that's great, Vince. You've got good input. I, uh, I laugh, you know, because when you think about the law and the Jewish people put so much emphasis on 
1,500 years. Right. That's a great point. That is a great point. Amen. Good in good observation. All right. Anyone else? Okay. Let's have somebody read uh, verses 18 and 19. 18 and 19. Yes, Terry. Okay, thank you. Uh, He continues here, verse 18. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Uh, Through him, the one who is our peace, uh, we now have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, reconciliation is a one-time happening, right? You say, uh, how many times are you reconciled to God? Only once. I mean, when you come to a saving faith in Christ, you're reconciled to God. But access is a, is a continual, ongoing thing of communion. And so he's, he's progressing in his thought here and saying it's through him, uh, the one who is our peace, uh, makes reconciliation with God possible. We both, again, equality. Um, Let's see here. I think I've got another slide here on this. In the Old Testament, access was very limited. We're talking access here. In the Old Testament, the closest the Gentiles could get was the outer court. The closest the Jewish women could get was one step closer in the women's court. The Jewish men could get into the temple quarters proper, but only the priests could get into the holy place. And only one priest, the high priest, could get into the holiest place, uh, the holy of holies, And he could only have access into this place of intimacy once a year on the Day of Atonement. But now, Jew and Gentile, including the formerly far-removed Gentile, can both continually enjoy the intimate presence of God on a level unparalleled in the Old Testament. Really an amazing reality that he's bringing out here. And it's kind of easy to just kind of take this for granted and not realize how blessed we are. Uh, as as those who live in the church age. Uh, we now have access, and we both, he says, both Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. Access here is in the present tense. And uh, the idea of access is, is the issue of approach to God. And it's the idea of having freedom of approach. Uh, we have freedom to approach God. I always think about Esther here, you know, Esther there in the Old Testament. And uh, she was terrified to go in before the king because if the king held out his golden scepter, all would be well. You, you would be received. You could approach the king with whatever was on your heart. But if you didn't hold out the scepter, what's going to happen? Sorry, you're gone. And so uh, the idea now is, you know, the golden scepter is being held out. We have access. We have access. We have freedom of access to God. And uh, we know what the basis is in Hebrews 10, 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We come through prayer right into the very intimate presence of God. We have access. Wow, what an amazing reality. We're no longer just way out here on the outskirts, maybe, you know, uh, 
at a distance. No, we come right into the Holy of Holies. And we come boldly. On what basis? Well, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it says, by one spirit to the Father. It's a spiritual reality. And when it comes uh, to prayer, we know that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. In Romans 8, 26, it says, often we don't know how to even pray. But the the Spirit uh, makes intercession for us. Uh, the Spirit is involved in our in our prayer life. Um, note uh, the Trinity here. Uh, through Him, that's Jesus Christ, verse 18, through Him, accessed by one Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to the Father. So you have, uh, you have the, the Trinity uh, represented here in this verse. And there's a lot of verses like that in the New Testament. This is one of them. And so a summary of what we've seen here. Because of Christ's cross work, there is peace horizontally between the Jews and the Gentiles who now uh, become one new humanity, you know, called the church. And because of Christ's cross work, there is peace vertically between believing Jews and Gentiles in God. The climactic result of this peace work is intimate access for both Jew and Gentile to God. We have access. And that's a tremendous reality. Uh, There is no longer any difference. There is no distance. All believers alike are equally one. All have peace with God. All have peace with each other. All have equal access to God. Well, that's a summary of kind of what we've seen in our study so far tonight. All right. Uh, Any other thoughts before we go to verse 19, which continues the thought? But notice verse 19. Now, therefore... Again, a summary emphasis here in regards to the spiritual unity that we have in Christ. Um, and, and especially an emphasis on the Gentiles. What an amazing reality, right, my fellow Gentiles? What an amazing reality uh, that we are now full partners in full spiritual union uh, with the Jews. Believing Jews. It's all based on belief. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. No longer are we strangers. You know, we're not just tourists standing out in the outer court, you know. No, we belong. We're not, we're not foreigners. We're not aliens. Uh, we are now citizens. We belong. That's the idea here. Uh, fellow citizens, full members. We belong to the community, the community of God, the family of God, with the saints. And all the believers are saints. Uh, saint means set apart one. Uh, we're all, all believers are called saints. And members of the household of God. Again, the household of God emphasizes the family of God. We now belong to the family of God. All right. Any other thoughts? Okay, let's finish it out. Somebody want to read uh, verses 20 through uh, 22? Yeah, okay. Okay, thank you. Having been built, God's building this. What's he building? The church, a forever family of believers. Uh, Having been built, how, how is God building it? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Note that word foundation. The apostles and prophets here are foundational. Uh... 
And as you think about the foundation, you go into chapter 3, he's going to emphasize uh, the revelatory work of the apostles and prophets. They gave us New Testament revelation, right? Uh, Christ said the Spirit will guide the disciples, the apostles, into all the truth. So all New Testament truth is is tied to the apostles and their close associates, the prophets. By the way, the prophets all had a, a connection with the apostles. And so... Uh, they are the foundation, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Uh, the word apostle means sent one. It's used in a general sense in the New Testament, like a church might send out somebody as a missionary. Uh, they're, they're called sent ones. So the church sent them out. But these are Christ's apostles. They are Christ's sent ones. And uh, that's a technical uh, usage. Uh, note, when used in the technical sense, the word apostle refers to the 12 disciples of the Lord who were personally commissioned and trained by him. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. One of the qualifications, uh, Acts chapter 1, you had to have seen the risen Christ to be an apostle. They were sent forth by Christ as his special authoritative representatives. They had their ministries authenticated with special signs and wonders, as we see in Hebrews, also 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, there were only 12 of them. In my view, Judas was replaced by Paul. Now, that's a little bit debated. You know, they chose another man there in, in Acts chapter 1. And, uh, but this is my view. And uh, the reason I uh, insist on 12 is because in the New Jerusalem, it says in Revelation twenty one fourteen. now the wall of the city, this is the eternal city that we're going to live in. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So, 12 foundations, 12 apostles of the Lamb. <clears throat> There's 12 of them. <laughs> so, uh, uh, note that. Uh, this is always a problem for those who want to pop their head up today and say, you know what, I, I am an apostle now, too. Follow me. And we got these charismatic guys out here who want to claim they're apostles, too. It's like, <clears throat> okay, is your name written down there in the, in the New Jerusalem on one of the foundations there? Uh, it's a pretty heady claim. Uh, been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The prophets, as I say, were the close associates. Um, when you think about the apostles, they had more of a universal church ministry. Um, the prophets were in local churches. Uh, before the New Testament was completed, they gave forth, thus saith the Lord, revelation, church truth uh, for the church. Um, so they worked together in harmony with the apostles. But I want to emphasize here, it was foundational. How many times do you lay the foundation? Once. You don't get to the third floor and say, I think we should put another foundation in here. No, you don't do that. Uh, you continue to build on that foundation. We go back to the apostles and prophets. That's why we have a problem with people like um, Latter-day prophets, right? Somebody comes along and says, you know, I, I too uh, am with the apostles. I, I'm a prophet. Well, they were foundational. And we go way back to the apostles, and, and the, the prophets were the contemporaries of them. We're not talking about Old Testament prophets. Yes, it's true, the New Testament does build on those. But these are uh, prophets related to the church age, the apostles and prophets related to the church age. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Again, I think we're, we're talking foundational realities and uh, revelatory realities. Uh, foundational revelation related to the church age that the church builds on. Notice it says Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. This is very significant. Um, you see, the uh, cornerstone was the most important stone. 
And it was laid first. And everything else had to align with the cornerstone. That's the way it is in terms of New Testament truth. By the way, who introduced a New Testament church truth? First. Well, it was Jesus, right? I will build my church. Uh, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and so forth. So uh, he is the uh, himself being the, the chief cornerstone. I think I've got another slide here. You can only lay a foundation once. Any debate there? No, thanks, thanks, thanks. In context, in view, is the revelatory foundation consisting of the ministry of the apostles and prophets who gave us the New Testament, all tied in with the key cornerstone ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, when anyone else comes along and says, I have a message from God, it is to be rejected as false. I always teach my you know, new converts, get this down, where Jesus says in John 16, 13, when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He's talking to his apostles. If you get down the truth that they gave us the foundation and we build on that, and that foundation, that revelatory foundation was completed by the apostles and their close associates of prophets, now somebody else comes along and says, I, I, I have additional revelation. Now we've got to update our Bibles. Okay, revelation. what should we call it? We've got something else in addition to revelation. Right. Let's not call it anything other than false teaching. Yeah, heresy. Uh, so uh, I like this quote from A.W. Tozer. If an angel would come and sit on my windowsill and say, I have a message from God, I would tell him to wait just a moment while I got my Bible and was thereby able to confirm what he said. Uh, where is the verse? Is that from the Bible or somewhere else? Yeah. Amen. Uh, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Absolutely. We go back. We trace all that we believe back to the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's what we build on. We don't go back to Joseph Smith a couple hundred years ago and say, well, yeah, he's got something to say too. No, he doesn't. Nothing that's truth. It's, he's a false prophet. We go back to the apostles and prophets. Okay. And then verse 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The whole building is connected to and centered in Jesus Christ. On him, the whole structure rests. And notice it says being fitted together. This is a masonry word uh, that masons would use, being fitted together. It it, it indicates a skillful precision in in fitting it together, uh, perfectly fitting it together. And uh, you fit in here, no pun intended, right? (laughs) That's true. Um, if you're saved, if you've been saved, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have a part in the building. You have a part in this, in this spiritual structure that God is making called the church. And, uh, you, you are fitted in just as God intends for you to be. You're gifted just as God intended. He places each one in the body just as it pleases him. First Corinthians chapter 12. And notice it's growing. Present tense grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Uh, present tense again. <clears throat> it's growing. Uh, it's not completed yet. It's still growing. God's still building this church. 
It grows, present tense. By the way, in the book of Acts, there are progress reports. The book of Acts is an early history of the church, and there's like seven progress reports in the book of Acts. It's growing, it's growing, it's growing. And we, hopefully, as a local church, are making a contribution to what God is doing in the world, which is building His church. That's why we're here. Grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. Uh, temple in the Lord. Uh, the idea of the temple was the dwelling place of God. And that's what we are. It's a spiritual reality. Uh, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's what the church is. It's a temple. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, uh, we go to church. No, the church goes to a building. But we are the church. We are the temple. And uh, it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16, uh, Paul talks about the whole church as, a, as the temple. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he talks about the individual as a temple. Both are true. By the way, uh, the, word, the Greek word temple here is naos. There was two words in the Greek for temple. Herion, which refers to the whole temple complex. But naos, the word used here, is very narrow. It refers to the inner sanctuary, the innermost sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. That's what we are. Uh, we are in that intimate relationship with God. And then verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Notice we're being built together. Uh, the church is uh, a together reality. Um, God never intended for us to function independently as an island by ourselves. Uh, being built together, what for? For a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This is where God dwells, in His people, in His temple. It's a spiritual reality here, in the Spirit. So note this, uh, got a few more slides to finish out here. Note the progression of thought in regards to spiritual intimacy that is developed in this passage. You're brought near by the blood of Christ. We have access. And we are now the dwelling place of God. We are the, the, the temple of God. Some scholars were discussing uh, great authors of the past. One asked, what if Milton should suddenly enter the room? Ah, replied another, we would honor him and apologize for the lack of recognition he received in his day. Another said, what if Shakespeare entered? Uh, would we not all stand and proclaim him the king of poets? Then someone ventured, and what if Jesus Christ should enter? It was a long silence. And then a believer said, but gentlemen, he is here. <laughs> well, he is there. Uh, of course, God is everywhere all the time. But in a very special sense, he dwells in his people as the church. In fact, Paul put out this challenge in 2 Corinthians thirteen five: Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. This is the defining reality for true believers, that God himself lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the living God. It's kind of easy to lose sight of that. I mean, we see each other, you know, we're flesh and blood and we all of our foibles and failures and everything else. But really, we are the temple of the living God in intimate relationship with him. What an awesome reality. You know, salvation, we think, boy, it's heaven. Yeah, we're going to heaven. But boy, there's a whole lot that relates to even right now in terms of our relationship with God, our access to him, our intimacy with him. 
Uh, it's an awesome reality, uh, this relationship that we now have with Jesus Christ. All right, any other thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? Okay, very good. Let's share some prayer requests. Uh,